Hi, I'm Dr. Chris Masterjohn of ChrisMasterjohnPhD.com, and you're watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. We are now in our second video of a series on the antioxidant defense system, and the big picture that we've been moving forward with and that we're going to continue moving forward with is shown on the screen. This big picture is that water-soluble oxidants, such as superoxide or hydrogen peroxide, can play either healthful or harmful roles in the cell, depending on the context. And so when you have them produced in the right amount in the right context, they have, as shown on the left, healthful physiological roles. But when you produce them in the wrong amount and in the wrong context, they have, as shown on the right, disease-producing pathological roles. And the function of the antioxidant system is to shift them away from their pathological roles and towards their physiological roles. Last video, we zeroed in on the physiological roles. Today, we're going to zero in on the pathological roles. We could break the pathological roles of oxidants into a couple of categories. We have oxidative damage or cell signaling. Oxidative damage is the irreversible modification to macromolecules, which are the large molecules that make up the structure of cells, such as lipids, proteins, and DNA. Traditionally, we focused on oxidative damage because we knew about it first, but what we're learning more recently is that most of the pathological roles of oxidants that most of us would experience are not mainly oxidative damage, they're mainly alterations to cellular signaling. Simply put, cell signaling is how cells communicate with one another or communicate internally in order to make the proper quote-unquote decisions about to what to do in any given context. And to alter cell signaling means to reversibly modify proteins to change their activity or to alter gene expression. And we could break down the pathological cell signaling roles into two types. One would be the proper signaling of a pathological environment. This is when the mechanism what the oxidant is communicating is exactly the same as what it does when it's doing a healthful role, only it's causing disease not because of that mechanism, but because what it is communicating is a disease-producing context. An example of that is something that we'll talk about momentarily, and that is last time we talked about how hydrogen peroxide could help an individual cell control how much glucose it's taking up or how many fatty acids it's taking into its mitochondria in order to balance energy demands with energy capacity, and that was health promoting. But in a, in a context of pathological energy overload where all the cells are overloaded with energy and none of them can take up the glucose, then the glucose is left in the blood where that causes hyperglycemia, which is the hallmark of diabetes and prediabetes. So in that case, you can have the exact same mechanism, which is hydrogen peroxide communicates to take up less glucose into the cell, but in a healthful context, that's a healthful role. And in a disease-producing context, that's a disease-producing role. In addition to that, we could have improper cell signaling. And that would be when 
oxidants leak out from one area where they're doing the right thing into another area where they're causing mischief. An example of that would be, say we have inflammation in a tissue, and that inflammation is producing oxidants internally that are supposed to be in the phagosome, like we talked about in the last lesson, in order to properly destroy whatever has been phagocytosed. But if it's producing a lot of it, there's going to be some leakage of that hydrogen peroxide out of the phagosome into the phagocyte's own cell and even some leakage maybe into the surrounding tissues. So if you have inflammation in, uh, it, let's say you have inflammation in muscle tissue or fat tissue and you have hydrogen peroxide leaking out into its surroundings, that hydrogen peroxide can then leak into another cell and inhibit glucose uptake in that cell. And maybe that cell is or isn't overloaded with energy, but it's making the decision to not take up energy because that hydrogen peroxide is there. But that hydrogen peroxide wasn't produced by that cell for that purpose. It was produced by the immune system for a different purpose. So that would be an example of improper signaling where you have this normal signaling mechanism, but it's happening for the wrong reason. All right, so let's look at some specific examples. Last time we talked about how hydrogen peroxide is produced by the mitochondria when the demands placed on the mitochondria are in excess of what it can handle. And that could be because of too much energy. In the case of energy overload, like for example, in someone who's obese who has chronic overexposure to energy. Or it could be in response to exercise because you're placing demands on the mitochondria to burn more ATP, not because you have more food available, available, but you have more muscle contraction and you need ATP. Either cases, you have hydrogen peroxide increasing in response to that. And if the context is healthful, for example, someone who is lean and fit is exercising, or someone who's lean and fit and 5% of their cells are deciding not to take up energy, that energy is just left over to the 95% of cells that can take it up, and you don't have any anything bad going on. You have an efficient allocation of resources. Now, let's suppose, however, that 95% of the person's cells are not taking up glucose, or 99%, or 100%. In that case, then this mechanism where hydrogen peroxide will inhibit glucose uptake into the cell is predominating throughout the body and there's nowhere to go for that glucose except out into the blood, outside the cells. And glucose accumulates in the blood. Now, this will inhibit even insulin-dependent glucose uptake, which means that the cell is not responding to the insulin. That's insulin resistance. And if glucose is rising outside the cell in the blood, then the pancreas is going to say, hey, blood glucose is higher. We need to make more insulin. But that insulin comes and tries to make the glucose go into the cell, but that hydrogen peroxide says, nope, ain't having it, ain't going to take up that glucose. And as a result, blood glucose and blood insulin levels will rise. Just as an example of some of the experimental evidence around this, this is a study where rodents were treated with an obesogenic diet, which they called a high-fat diet, abbreviated HF in these figures. 
and they were made obese with this diet, or they were, I should say, they were made obese alone, or they were made obese, and they were given a synthetic antioxidant that targets itself to the mitochondria and prevents mitochondrial accumulation of hydrogen peroxide. What you see on the left is experimental evidence where the mitochondria were taken from the animals and then they were exposed in vitro, meaning in a dish, sort of, isolated from the living animal. They were exposed to greater and greater amounts of energy and that's uh, plotted energy provided along the horizontal axis. Then the investigators measured how much hydrogen peroxide do they produce, and that's plotted along the vertical axis. And as you can see, for any of the animals, the more energy was provided, the more hydrogen peroxide was produced until it reached a plateau. However, in the animals that became obese and did not get the synthetic antioxidant, they had a massive increase in hydrogen peroxide production. Whereas the animals that got the standard chow who were lean, or the animals that got the obesogenic diet and the mitochondrial antioxidant, hydrogen peroxide levels were brought back down to normal. That's what happened outside the living animal. On the right, you're seeing what happened inside the animal. And this is the results of a glucose tolerance test. If this were given to a human, it would be an oral glucose tolerance test. In these animals, they inject glucose into the tail vein, but it has the same principle. And that principle is, if you're suddenly exposed to a lot of glucose, you want to be able to maintain your blood sugar relatively stable. So it should probably go up, but it shouldn't go up that much, and it should come back down gently over time. And what you see on the screen is the area under the curve for glucose in the left panel and for insulin on the right panel. The area under the curve literally means if you plotted glucose uh, and you would see it go up and then come back down, the area under that represents the total increase in blood glucose. So this is just a way of summarizing the data. And what you can see is that the white bars represent the control animals, the black bars represent the animals that got the obesogenic diet with no antioxidant, and the gray bars represent the animals that got the obesogenic diet plus the antioxidant. And you can see that the glucose response was increased in the animals that only got the obesogenic diet, but if they also got the antioxidant, it normalized it to the level of the controls. The same was true of the insulin response. More glucose and more insulin is considered worse and reflective of the trajectory towards prediabetes and diabetes. So what this shows is that the negative metabolic effects of an obesogenic diet, at least in these animals, appears to be mediated by increased mitochondrial production of hydrogen peroxide. Now, it's also true that if you have chronic energy overload that results in obesity, as adipose tissue grows, which is called hypertrophy, and those fat cells depicted here get larger and larger because they're accumulating more and more fat 
immune system cells shown here infiltrate it and they produce inflammatory cytokines and many other things but also part of what they produce is oxidants because that's what phagocytic immune system cells do as we covered in the last lesson and if you're producing a lot of oxidants and you're producing bleach and you're producing hydrogen peroxide and some of it leaks out into that tissue then it's going to diffuse into the adipocytes and inhibit glucose uptake. So it's not only the case that energy overload is properly communicating the signals from the mitochondria, it's also the case that inflammation is driving some degree of improper cell signaling. Now you can imagine that both of these things are going on here. So for example, Take these adipocytes. They have too much energy and their mitochondria are saying, hold on, we can't handle anymore, are making more reactive oxygen species and that's decreasing glucose uptake. But also, these immune cells are leaking out hydrogen peroxide and bleach into those cells that is further inhibiting glucose uptake over and above what that cell is properly deciding to do. So number one, the proper cell signaling is saying we can't handle more glucose so we're not going to take any more up. And what makes that pathological is simply the fact that so many cells are rejecting the glucose that net glucose is increasing in the blood. On top of that, the immune system infiltration of the adipose tissue is probably to some degree augmenting that response with improper signaling where bleach and hydrogen peroxide that was meant for the phagosome is to some degree leaking into those tissues and further causing them to reject glucose over and above what the cell had rationally decided to do based on its own production of oxidants. And so that goes back to the beginning where we can have proper cell signaling and improper cell signaling both contributing to pathology. If we take an analogy to use here, I think we could tie this to team sports. Let's say that the normal response to reject glucose based on internal production of reactive oxygen species is analogous to noticing that a player on the field has to be taken off because you don't want that player to get injured and you don't want that player to drag down the team. So if that player is fatigued and can't handle anymore, you take the player off and that allows the team to function better and it preserves, protects that player. That's like a given mitochondrion or a given cell full of mitochondria can't handle anymore. You take that cell offline. Until it can come back on, that protects the cell and it protects the body. Now, if everything's going well, then that's healthful and it's in favor of the health of the team. But what happens if most of the players on the field or all of the players on the field are so fatigued that they should all be taken off the field? Well, you either forfeit the game 
or you lose the game because all your players are getting injured and they're all dragging down the team because none of them are playing well. So that's kind of analogous to some of the cells in the body rejecting glucose. Who cares? You protect that cell, some other cell will take it up. If most of the cells are rejecting glucose, you have the same exact type of signaling leading to a pathological context. Okay, now let's move on to talk about oxidative damage. There are multiple types of oxidative damage to different macromolecules in the cell, proteins, lipids, DNA. We're just going to cover the basics of lipid peroxidation here. This is the prototypical example that we've known the longest, known about for the longest, and that we know the most about, and it's also the most sensitive. So quite often the case, if you have oxidative damage going on in a cell, it's going to happen to the lipids first because they're more vulnerable. And if it happens to the lipids, then other types of damage occur. And when you're looking at lipids, you can see them categorized in three ways as saturated, monounsaturated in the upper right, or polyunsaturated in the bottom. And what each of those mean is these double bonds signified by two by a double line between the carbons, they're either not there at all in a saturated fatty acid, there's only one double bond in a monounsaturated fatty acid, and there's two double bonds in a polyunsaturated fatty acid. And we call them saturated or unsaturated because if you have a double bond, you're missing two hydrogens. And so saturated means they're saturated with hydrogen, unsaturated means they have a few less hydrogens than they could. But for our purposes, what we care about is the double bond. Now, lipid peroxidation happens when you have a carbon that's located between two of these double bonds, and that carbon is vulnerable to loss of its hydrogen and its electron. That loss of an electron is called oxidation. And because it's the carbon situated between two double bonded carbons that is uniquely vulnerable to oxidation, that means that polyunsaturated fatty acids are uniquely vulnerable to this process because they're the only type of fatty acids that have two or more double bonds. And this is a process where after you lose the hydrogen and electron, you have a vulnerable spot where oxygen can come in and join it to make a lipid peroxyl radical, and then it can form a lipid peroxide, and those lipid peroxides can fragment into small pieces such as, for example, malondialdehyde, and these are highly reactive. I'm gonna cover exactly how this occurs in more detail in the next slide, but for now I wanna liken this to a delicate piece of glass breaking. If you imagine the polyunsaturated fatty acid as glass, it's delicate, just like your eyeglasses or your drinking glasses or your windows. And that means that it's useful, but it's very vulnerable to damage. If you do damage it, it fragments. Well, what, is, what do you do when glass breaks? You very, very, very carefully clean it up and you're careful because the broken shards can hurt you and they can damage other things. You can imagine malondialdehyde, or MDA as we call it, as a shard of glass. 
So these delicate pufas are breaking. These small fragments are like shards. They become dangerous to everything else in the cell. So if you have lipid peroxidation and you have fragmentation, then that can precipitate damage to other molecules of the cell like proteins and DNA. And so it becomes really important for the cell to have not only a way to prevent lipid peroxidation, but also a way to carefully clean it up to prevent these shards from causing damage in the rest of the cell. How the cell does that, we're gonna talk about in the next video. For now, let's outline the lipid peroxidation chain reaction. Let's say we have a polyunsaturated fatty acid, shown in the upper left. An oxidant can initiate the peroxidation chain reaction by grabbing its hydrogen and electron and becoming something else. If this were an oxidant that is the hydroxyl radical, that's OH dot, then it would become water because OH dot, then take a hydrogen and pair it up with an electron, gives you OH plus H, H2O, water. Okay? But this could be another oxidant that's becoming something else that's neutralized. The point is, once the oxidant gets the electron and hydrogen it's looking for, it kind of leaves the scene and it's like, oh, hum, I'm happy. It was hungry, now it's full. It has gone away. The problem is, now you have a lipid radical. And that dot, we could call it L for lipid, L dot, that dot means or signifies an unpaired electron. That means it is now a free radical. Free radical means by definition you have an unpaired electron. All electrons want to exist in pairs. That means this lipid radical is now super reactive. It has a voracious appetite for a new electron. Before it even gets one, oxygen comes in and makes this LOO dot the lipid peroxyl radical. Now the lipid peroxyl radical is the one with the voracious appetite for an electron. Well, where can it get it? If you're in a cellular membrane with a bunch of polyunsaturated fatty acids, then the answer is obvious. You take it from another polyunsaturated fatty acid because this carbon between two double bonds, as we already said, is vulnerable. And just as it was vulnerable to the initiation event, now it's vulnerable to what we call the propagation event. Propagation is this lipid peroxyl radical says, hey PUFA, I want your electron. And while I'm at it, I'm gonna snag that hydrogen too. And so it goes away satisfied, ho-hum, I've had my fill, now that it becomes a lipid peroxide, that H was taken from this guy, it's still dangerous because it can fragment to form MDA broken shards like we talked about before. But the reason that this becomes a chain reaction is because now you've created a new lipid radical. And that new lipid radical grabs onto oxygen, becomes the lipid peroxyl radical, and says, I'm hungry. Where can I get a hydrogen and an electron? Again, the answer is obvious. The next PUFA in the membrane takes it, has its fill, that new PUFA becomes a lipid radical, and the cycle repeats on and on and on and on and on endlessly. 
This usually doesn't happen. Why? Because the antioxidant defense system is partly designed to make sure that it never happens. However, when we talk about vitamin E in a later lesson, we'll note that vitamin E is designed to stop the propagation event. It's not designed to stop the initiation event. And what that means is that all of us are going to have some degree of lipid peroxidation because we all have some PUFAs in our membrane and we all have some oxidants. So even though our system is designed to minimize lipid peroxidation, it still happens. And although, as I said before, cell signaling is probably the main thing affected by pathological roles of oxidants, there's still some reason to think that disease states do involve increased lipid peroxidation. And to round off today's lesson, I'm just going to show you an illustrative example. This is a study where they looked at MDA levels in the blood of people with various levels of thyroid health and disease. On the left is C for control. Next is Hashimoto's thyroiditis, HT. Next is Graves' disease, GD. And next is papillary thyroid carcinoma, or thyroid cancer, in the black on the right. And what you can see is that MDA levels in the blood double in Hashimoto's thyroiditis, quadruple in Graves' disease, and are massively increased in thyroid cancer. And this indicates that across the board, common thyroid diseases involve increased lipid peroxidation. And as you get to more severe and rare diseases, in particular thyroid cancer, you have the greatest increase in lipid peroxidation. This is an observational study. It doesn't mean lipid peroxidation is the direct cause here. However, we can note a few things. As we talked about in the first lesson, the thyroid gland is particularly vulnerable to lipid peroxidation because it has to make enormous quantities of hydrogen peroxide for its own purposes. And that means that if everything's working well, it successfully isolates the hydrogen peroxide to the proper amount and context. But if you have some deficiency in the antioxidant system, that hydrogen peroxide is a major liability that can cause oxidative damage in the cell. And so it makes sense that thyroid diseases is where we might be most likely to see increased lipid peroxidation. Now, also, if you take something like Hashimoto's thyroiditis, we also know that or Graves' disease, we know that these imply an inflammatory component. This is kind of a chicken and egg situation because we know that as tissue is damaged, the immune system comes to clean it up. So damaged tissue is a cause of immune infiltration. But we also know that the immune system creates reactive oxygen species. So inflammatory infiltration can become a liability where you can have oxidants leaking into the surrounding tissue. What came first, the chicken or the egg? What came first, the oxidative damage or the inflammation? I don't know, and I don't know if it matters. You probably have multiple causes of either, and if you have one, you're gonna get the other, and if you have the other, you're gonna get the one, and if you have multiple causes leading to both, you're gonna get a vicious cycle where oxidative stress and inflammation keep increasing each other. And if you wanna attack that to solve it, you wanna take a multifaceted approach that's gonna address the inflammation and the oxidative stress and the more multifaceted approach 
the more multifaceted the approach is by addressing all the different aspects of the vicious cycle, the most likely it is to be successful. All right, so that covers, again, not in a comprehensive way, but a few key illustrative examples of how oxidants can provide pathological roles. And in the next video, we're going to talk about how the antioxidant defense system helps prevent the pathological roles and facilitate the physiological roles, meaning prevent the disease-causing roles and promote the health or facilitate or allow the health-promoting roles. And then in future lessons, we'll take apart the antioxidant system and look at each nutrient and metabolic factor that's involved in it. All right, I hope you enjoyed this lesson. Uh, signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com, and you have been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn. So I'll see you in the next lesson.